Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by pastoral resident Ian Mulraney. All right, so I have like the classic Christian background of being raised, going to church since like the week I was out of the hospital, going through Sunday school, youth group, and eventually graduating and going to college. And so all my life I knew Christianity and I never really learned anything about the other world religions. So when I got to college, I actually became a religious studies major to understand other world religions. Um, and partly, I was going through a little bit of a faith crisis at the time, just seeing, do they have any truth to offer as well? And so most of that's a story for another time. But one of the religions I ended up learning about was, if you can consider it, atheism. Um, now, the thing about atheism is there's no religious text to study. They don't have a Quran or Bhagavad Gita or anything like that. Um, but they do have a lot of documentaries. So that, that's what I ended up spending most of my time uh, viewing when I was trying to understand the atheist worldview. And uh, one of those documentaries uh, was a video called The God That Wasn't There. Now, this was made, it was like a self-made uh, documentary. And the director slash producer um, slash cameraman he, his first half of the film, he featured uh, arguments and explanations about why the Judeo-Christian God could not actually exist. That um, things that you know, didn't make sense and ripping off a chorus and arguments you may or may not have heard about. Um, but then halfway through the film, it takes a sharp right turn. And instead of talking about why the Judeo-Christian God couldn't exist, it starts to feel very awkward as you sort of see this guy start to just pull out baggage from his religious background. And he starts talking about um, his personal story and why he doesn't believe in God anymore. And it becomes so much focused on him that the third act of the film takes place in the Christian high school he went to when he was growing up. And the interviews are no longer with uh New Testament scholars and things like that, but it's like with the faculty of his school. So it was a very strange experience. But um, one of the things he starts talking to the faculty at his school about is like about the unforgivable sin. Like, is there anything someone could do that could mean they wouldn't be allowed to go to heaven? And one of the people who works at the school says, well, um, Jesus said that anyone who denies the Holy Spirit is... Uh, cannot be forgiven and so the movie ends with this guy going into the chapel of his school where he first became a christian and very dramatically turning the camera on himself and he says i deny the holy spirit cut to black roll credits dun, dun, dun. he was saying that he had now doomed himself to hell which he had been arguing there wasn't a God, but just in case, and if there is a God, now he, in the place where he became a Christian, now left Christianity forever and could no longer be forgiven because he had done the one thing that God could not and would not forgive. Um, that stuff scares me, actually, because I have a lot of uh, 
religious baggage and spent a lot of my childhood wondering, am I going to go to heaven or to hell when I die? And so even though I thought what this guy was, did was a little silly, it made me wonder, like, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit when Jesus teaches about it so simple? Can it just be a simple statement of I deny the Holy Spirit? Can it be singing along with uh, super tramp lyrics where you say, my devil is my savior? Uh, could it be something that uh, you can do accidentally um, or even purposefully at the time that once you've done it, God will no longer forgive you? Had I already lost my salvation was something I really wrestled with. But maybe some of you have had similar thoughts or fears. Um, either way, today I want to explore what was Jesus really teaching in the context of this passage, Matthew 12? And what are the lessons that we as the 21st century church can take from it? So let's, let's dig in and see. Oh, we can get rid of this actually. Oh, oh, there we go. Cool. All right. Dun, 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 dun. So, yeah. In this passage, we hear about the Holy Spirit. And hopefully we're all familiar with uh, with the Holy Spirit and that it's part of the presence of God. And like Scotty explained last week, it is the transformative, invisible, creative power of God described with the Hebrew word ruach, spirit, breath, wind. But perhaps we're not all as familiar with Beelzebul or Balzabul. Um so this is a more recent depiction of Beelzebul. I don't think we actually have any idea of what he originally was depicted as, but um, does anyone know what Beelzebul means? Anyone take English in high school? It's Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, that's right. Yeah, for anyone who had to read that book. Um, yes, it comes from uh, a term that means Lord of the Flies. And the only other time we see Beelzebul in the Bible is actually in 2 Kings. He is a Philistine god of the city of Ekron. And King, oh, I gotta check my notes here, King Ahaziah of Israel, he falls out of his window and gets severely injured. And so he sends messengers uh, to go petition Beelzebul to ask, um, am I going to recover from this injury? And sort of pray for healing. And so the prophet Elijah uh, catches the messengers on their way to the temple of Beelzebul and says, because your king did not ask Yahweh, the God of Israel, for help, he's going to die of his injuries. And that's actually what comes to happen. And that's the only time we hear about Beelzebul in the Bible besides when the, Phil or the Pharisees start talking about it. Um, but... The reason they bring him up is because over time, some of the Philistine and Babylonian gods had gotten mixed into the Jewish demonology studies, and they had started naming demons after idols and uh, false gods. And so Beelzebul ended up getting named the prince of demons and actually became associated with Satan, with the devil himself. So... In Matthew 12, our passage tonight, the Pharisees witnessed Jesus perform a miracle of healing on a man who was born 
a man who is blind and mute. And then they say that his healing is only because he's demon-possessed by Beelzebub, by Satan. So that's when Jesus, understandably, decides to counter their theory by quoting Abraham Lincoln. He says, a house divided will not stand. Like, how would it make sense that if Satan was in Jesus kicking demons out of people, how would Satan be able to hold possession of the world if he's just evicting his own servants? So the Pharisees, obviously, uh, they give a heavy accusation against Jesus. And it's easy for us to crap all over them because they're so often the adversaries in the gospel. You know, they're usually the bad guys. They do help get Jesus executed. But I want us to be honest with ourselves tonight because I think sometimes, especially in a passage where Jesus is telling them, you've committed the unforgivable sin. I think it's important that we can sympathize with them and understand their perspective. So you want to hit that slide back? Yeah. There's some Pharisees right there. So I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine it's first century Jerusalem. In that headspace. And you are a priest. One of these guys and you get to wear some cool clothes. This is your people's history. Your ancestor Abraham was called into covenant relationship by the one and only God who promised that he was going to give your people a land and that through your nation, the entire world was going to be blessed. But what happens as you read the stories in your scriptures is that your ancestors are given a law by God himself about how they're supposed to act and follow. And what they do is continually over and over break that law to the heartbreak of God, to the sadness of God, and they're disciplined and punished and then given another chance and they break it again and disciplined and punished until finally God takes away the land that they had been promised by having the Babylonians take them all into exile. But by God's grace, your people have returned again to the land. But now Rome is occupying your territory. You're still in the land, but Rome is your overseers. As one of Israel's religious leaders, you believe that if the people take seriously the commandments of God, then Israel will be blessed by God and given their own kingdom once again. You're waiting for the person who's going to do this, the Messiah. But until that time comes, the Romans serve as a constant threat that should Israel disobey, disobey their land and privilege can be revoked just like it was once before. So, with that mindset, look at what Jesus has been doing. If you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, you know that his early healings involve him touching the flesh of lepers and corpses. This is an act that would make you ceremonially unclean according to the law. He goes into the homes of Gentiles, another forbidden action which would make him considered unclean. And not only that, but he has a questionable birth. Even in the Gospel of Mark, which doesn't have a, have a virgin birth account, uh, the people call him son of Mary, which suggests that they don't think Joseph was actually his father. These are all just points of gossip, 
that can sully his reputation, but there are some more serious allegations. Jesus has dinner regularly with sinners and prostitutes. Just think about that. What if I told you one of the pastors on the list we prayed for had dinner weekly with porn stars? What do you think about that pastor? But perhaps the biggest offense that Jesus does, and it actually is in the verses that precede this chapter we're studying tonight, is that Jesus constantly heals on the Sabbath, and he has his disciples gathered, eat grain on the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath day, a day of rest that God has commanded that people are to do no work at all. A day which Moses had someone executed for gathering sticks on. Capital punishment. So how is it possible that someone claiming to be from God so willingly breaks one of the ten most important laws that your people follow? He does it so blatantly in a way that could lead other people astray. Surely a true follower of God would not disregard the law so lightly. So obviously the only other conclusion that this man is not of God, but is actually a servant of the devil. His healings must be witchcraft and shamanism, not holy power. It's a deception of Satan, and like all things of Satan, needs to be exposed and rebuked. So this is the Pharisees' mission, and this is why they've been plotting to murder Jesus since the last chapter. So I just wanted to make the case for the Pharisee stance that they could be justified from certain perspectives. I don't think any of us walk around thinking we're the villains in God's story. So you do not have to agree with them, but I hope you understand their point of view. They're not all power hungry. They just want to protect their tribe. But we also need to make it so that Jesus can make his case. You know, it's Jesus. So he makes it with power, logic, and dare I say, spirit. Uh, does anyone know where the verses I that were at the beginning of this passage were from tonight? Matthew didn't write them. The ones that were talking about a, re, a broken reed, bruised reed, he will not break. Not Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 47, but close. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the prophet Isaiah, written more than 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. It's a passage that the Pharisees most certainly had studied before and probably had memorized. Uh, this passage talks about the character and the mission of the coming Messiah who would bring about the monarchy, the, you know, Israel's kingdom once again that the Pharisees so long had uh, desired. Is that the next slide? Is that what I think it is? No, but you can leave that up. Um, the Pharisees were the teachers of the people who would have read this passage on the Sabbath day, which they held so sacred and explained its meaning to the people, that the Messiah would come to bring justice, to lift up the oppressed, that it was going to be someone who was meek and gentle and met the needs of the people. But yet, when that passage was fulfilled before their eyes, when they saw miracles performed again and again, instead of declaring to the people, this is the Messiah, they declare him Beelzebub, Satan. So, 
Think of Jesus encountering the stubborn hearts of the priests and Pharisees and the frustrations that he must have felt. And now that I've had you think about the Pharisees' perspective and Jesus' perspective, the last perspective I want us to get into tonight is the blind mute man. Does anyone know anyone who has blind? Yeah. Think of them. Think of um, what it's like to be unable to see for years. And that this person not only could not see, they couldn't speak either. They live in darkness. And how do you think they express their needs and wants to others? They rely solely on the goodness of other people to take care of them. And that's just the physical ailments. What we're told in this passage is that this man is actually, the reason he's blind and mute is because he's demon-possessed. I don't know what that's like, but I can imagine it's just a feeling of dark force and energy that probably affects your mental and spiritual well-being. So one day, one of your caretakers brings you to a man who in an instant heals you of all your affliction. You open your eyes and you can see. You open your mouth and you can shout for joy. It's a miracle. It's amazing. This is good news, right? You want to celebrate, right? But what if your religious leaders tell you you were healed by the devil? That's not good news anymore, is it? That actually could be worse news than if you had just stayed blind and mute. If Satan is the one who healed you, your soul could now be in a much more precarious place than it was before. Your body might actually be cursed. Maybe this is going to lead to some other sort of illness or death. Can you imagine what the pain that man must have felt to be freed after years of blindness and muteness and affliction, just to be told that his healing is actually evil and not a good thing? How can he rejoice? How can he praise God for his recovery? And also, if he believes the Pharisees' words, that brings him awkward questions of, if Satan's willing to show up, then where is God? And this is why Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees, and he takes the time to address them because he knows their thoughts and their words. This is not just about them slandering him. He actually says any uh, slander against the Son of Man, any word against the Son of Man can be forgiven. There's lots of people throughout history who have spoken illly of Jesus that have become saved later on. Look at the Apostle Paul for one. This isn't just talking badly about Jesus. This is talking bad about the Spirit, about the healing, transformative of God. When the Pharisees attack Jesus' sheep, when they deny the glory of the life-giving, renewing energy of the Spirit of God, transforming power in people's lives, then he gets angry and he lets the accusers know that they're off base. Jesus protects his sheep. If you're not gathering the sheep with him, then you're scattering. If you are not with him, then you're against him. And so it is that the Pharisees are telling people that Jesus is not the Son of God. Um, and so Jesus, Uno reverses their statement back 
onto them. There, he's, you know, it starts with them saying Jesus is blaspheming, and it ends with Jesus saying, no, actually, you're the ones who are blaspheming. You're the accusers, the Satans, the one of the devil. That is something God does not forgive. So, this, let's step back for a second and look at this passage. Like, so in the context of what we just explored, sitting in everybody's minds and looking at the perspectives, this was not Jesus coming down off the mountain like Moses with the new commandment to give to the people. This was addressed specifically to the religious leaders. It wasn't meant to be used as a verse that scares people that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're going to go to hell. You've got to be careful what you say and do. This was directed to a specific audience, those who were in power, who were discounting and minimizing the work of God in lives of others because it threatened their security and their vision. If this verse has ever been used to make you fear for your salvation, I just want to say I'm sorry because that's not what Jesus intended it to do. Um, the only case would be if you were a leader in the temple who witnessed Jesus perform a miracle and you said that it was the power of the devil, then it was intended for you. But if not, <laughs> if not, um, just rest easy because Jesus loves you. <laughs> and actually, that's, that's actually what I wanted to talk about. Like, this passage, instead of, like, making you feel afraid for your sins, should actually offer some really, really good news. Like, do we remember what Jesus says here? That every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven? And it's amazing. Every kind of sin, right? Do you believe that as you go through your week? When you gossip at work, when you catch yourself in greed or deception or betrayal, do you know that Jesus says that can be forgiven? Like, that's really great news. Like, even if we want to get uncomfortable, if we take this literally, even the abhorrent sins that we hate in ourselves and others, Jesus says he can cover. Murder, racism, rape. The stuff sometimes we don't want to be forgiven. Jesus is saying that God's love, his grace, the cross can cover all those things. So instead of making you fear for your salvation, this should be really good news that all Christ has forgiven all your trespasses. However, if you know somebody who has broken the chains of their addiction, but they didn't do it through a religious program and are doing it on their own, and you tell them it's not valid, then damn you. If there's a friend of yours who recently became a Christian and you tell them their salvation is not legitimate because a woman preached a sermon or performed the baptism where they accepted Christ, then damn you. If you see a blind and a mute man healed by the Spirit of God and you denounce it as the work of the devil, then damn you. This is what Jesus is saying. Damn you if you think that God only fits inside the theology box you were handed in life. Because the Spirit of God is alive. He's moving and breathing, and he exists beyond our understanding. I think this is why so many uh, sermons are so hard to capture what the Spirit is, because we don't know what the Spirit is going to do next. Even the apostles didn't. Um, 
they thought the church was just going to be for Jews. And then Peter sees a vision where he's told to kill and eat unclean animals. And then suddenly Gentiles, uncircumcised people are part of the church. We don't know how the spirit is moving and changing. This is the majesty, the power of the spirit of God. And so what I'm saying is not a new teaching about, you know, if, if you're willing to say someone else's invalid or condemn them, because it's what Jesus says over and over. I'm just being a little more blunt, but Jesus says, if you forgive others their sins, then you're going to be forgiven. But if you condemn them, the measure you use is going to be used against you. So you better not have any spots on your slate either. Jesus loves us. And he wants people to be in his kingdom. He wants people to know him. But he doesn't tolerate people who are going to close the door when their stuff's not clean themselves. So if you're looking for reasons to discount someone else's faith journey, like if, if you're trying to nitpick someone else's faith, how can you have community with them? Like, we prayed this morning for all those churches. If you're willing to go through the doctrinal statements of all of them and just say, well, this is why they're not really a Christian church or whatever. You can't exist in community with those people because you don't think you're both part of the kingdom of God. And this goes back to the house divided. Abe Lincoln. Um, house divided. That doesn't only apply to Satan's kingdom, right? That can apply to the church too. So perhaps we need to practice as Christians ways to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what denominations or theologies they belong to. Uh, can you hit a few slides, Matt? I feel like I missed some, but yeah, that one would pass. Yeah, yeah, leave it there. That's one. new visual. <laughs> so I want to speak from personal experience um, on this topic, actually. So growing up, I was taught that all Catholics are going to hell. Is anyone else taught similar things? All dogs go to heaven, all Catholics burn forever, right? Yes. But, yeah. The reason I was taught for this idea was because Catholics put their faith in work righteousness instead of the blood of Christ. You know, it's not grace by faith in their tradition, uh, supposedly, um, that... If you mix in their, their overemphasis on Mary and the other saints, if you take their literal interpretation of Holy Communion um, and throw in a dash of purgatory, it just is the whole wrong theology about God and Jesus and is therefore not an actual Christian faith that they don't actually know Jesus. And so this was a scary belief for me to hear growing up because um, on my dad's side of the family, I have over 20 relatives and every single one of them is Catholic. And then when I got married to Amanda, everyone in her family is Catholic too. So this meant that I was the person God had put in both these families to bring them to Jesus. And that was a lot of people. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do because sometimes my cousin, who was Catholic, his faith looked stronger than mine. And sometimes, um, well, yeah. Like, they were, in certain ways, better people than I was, doing more selfless acts. And all I had was the right theology. So, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know how right that theology is, if I'm being honest with myself. In fact, sometimes more than not, I think I have the wrong theology. So my apologies that I'm up here right now. But um, if it's any consolation, I think the Peters, Matthews, Marys, Pauls in the Bible also often had wrong theology as well. But the grace of God leads us all forward. So it struck me later in life, this kind of notion that what I thought was wrong about Catholics was a works theology that you have to do something A in order to reach heaven, I guess if that was the end goal, um, that that was actually what I had been believing the whole time, that I was a Protestant, that I was like, I have to convince people to A, have the right statement about Jesus in order for them to get to heaven, which in its way is its own works theology. It's saying that it's not just completely relying on the grace of God. It's relying on you saying the right things or saying the right sinner's prayer. This is why I accepted Jesus three times at church camp, because I wanted to make sure I got it right. And how is that relying on the grace and love of the blood of Christ? So, um, yeah. And so as I kind of came to that understanding, that's why I, Amanda's grandmother's funeral this week who was a very devoted Catholic woman. Uh, one of her best friends, who's a secret, secret Protestant, like pulled me aside and asked me, like, do you think she's in heaven? Like while we were at the funeral. And I just answered without hesitation, like, yes, because I've seen it. Like I've seen how her grandmother prayed. I'd seen how her grandmother took care of people and loved people outside of her circle. Like, you know, I knew that her grandmother believed in God and in Jesus. And if that isn't enough, then I don't know what is. So, yeah, be careful who you judge and who you condemn based on their faith. But the other thing is, this is, I guess, where we'll hit before we conclude is I'm not giving a, uh, you know, I'm not saying that everybody's faith is valid and everybody who claims to follow God is doing it with a pure heart and intentions. Because actually Jesus doesn't say that, right? He ends this passage by talking about trees and their fruit, you know? So if we're supposed to look at what he says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Um, for you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So if Jim Jones comes to you and says he's following God and invites you to take some Kool-Aid that's going to kill you, you can say no and maybe say like, hey, I don't think this is actually what God's telling me to do too. We have to look at what is the fruit. Is it, um, you know, this is for our benefit that can actually defend us from predators and from bad theology, from grifters who want to take advantage of the sheep of God. So what is that good fruit? And what is bad fruit besides honeydew? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's what Isaiah said earlier tonight. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one whom I love and delight. I will put my spirit on him. 
He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out. That's just talking about the lowly that he's not going to oppress or put burdens on them that are going to crush them. Until he has brought justice through the victory, in his name, the nations will put their hope. The good fruit of the Messiah is going to be, going to be someone who comes gently to the lowly, who proclaims justice, that people are going to put their hope in him. And for other reference of what good fruit can look like, we can look to Paul, you know, who was a Pharisee who slandered Jesus. But the transforming, renewing of God rescued him from that way of thinking. And he writes later in the New Testament that the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you see those things in somebody's walk with God, it looks like they're bearing good fruit. If you see just a consistent, we're all imperfect, we all sin, but if you see constantly over and over anger, wrath, malice, gossip, slander, you know, abuse in whatever form that takes, that's bad fruit. We look for a spirit which breaks chains of slavery and gives people new life, which heals diseases, which opens eyes and opens tongues so they can praise God for the first time. If we see that, that's of God. That's not of Satan. So overall, my petition for you this week is to let your words be few and your judgment seldom because God's spirit is bigger than any of us can truly know. The last bit of good news is that there is going to be a judgment and it's going to include those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And so the, just as just ending on a personal note, if you walk out of here today, your faith walk, we're in community together, but ultimately Jesus is the one who knows where you stand with him and what your relationship with him looks like. If you're constantly seeking to live in Christ, constantly daily taking up your cross to die to yourself, to follow him, if you're constantly striving to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then take heart. You're part of the kingdom. And it doesn't matter what anyone else may say or about you or to you. The spirit is your mark of salvation, and it guarantees you eternal life, knowing God and his Christ forever. And so we can go in peace knowing that Jesus loves us and the Spirit is among us. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.